Cox's panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one, so you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is red color, red color. Where are you? <sighs> all blocked thanks to advanced security included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. How are you guys doing? How are the portfolios? It's kind of a bloodbath today. Yeah, it's tough. That's all I got to say. <laughs> Astute analysis there, Brett. Yeah, it's yeah, bloodbath today. Did a little bit of buying, um, but sold. I you know we were talking about the Twitter call the other day. I sold the Twitter call today. Um, to generate some cash for the other stuff, got a little bit about a 20% gain on that. So I decided uh, that's enough, enough of a gain there and um, go ahead and use the cash for some other stuff. So nice. You wrote with you wrote with Elon and it worked, huh? He hasn't, yeah. he hasn't, uh, he hasn't hurt you in the past. Right. So yeah, not much. Um, but Stock Berkshire. Yeah, we went at Warrior's thoughts. Uh, what is it? A few days from now, a few days later, uh, how are you guys digesting it? I enjoyed it a lot. I, uh, the, the first night was a lot of fun. Second night was fun too, but I was kind of fatigued from the whole day. So I was a little down and out, but, uh, next time we got to stick around for the Markel brunch. I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that existed. That sounds fun. Yeah. It seems more niche, kind of smaller. You know, you could ask real questions. Less yeah. of like a less of like a festival, more like a real <laughs> meeting. Yeah, yeah, the Berkshire one is let you can't ask real questions anymore. If you kind of get what I mean, it's more of the I don't know. You know, you guys know what I mean. It's kind of the the questions you know are coming. Kind of spectacle. It's like yeah, it's for the public, not for like shareholders. Yeah, but Friday was great. I mean, we ended up at a uh, a party, not really a party, but like a, like a dinner that we weren't supposed to be at. So apologies to anyone, but that, there was no there was no uh, restriction. So th- that was great. We got to meet a lot of people that we've known from you know Twitter that I've never met from real life, and some investors we respect. So. Yeah, let us give some context around how out of place we were. So we went to a brewery in Omaha and there it was a multi-story brewery. And one of our friends from the show who has been on before uh, invited us downstairs. We didn't know where we were going. And it just so happened to be the private party that 
a famous investor, I'll just name him, Chuck Acri was throwing and we were so out of place. And he looked at, he looked at us like we needed to leave. <laughs> I, uh, it was great, uh, but I didn't know we were felt crashing, like we did not <laughs> belong. I had a pink sweatshirt on. And it was a bad choice of clothing for that sort of event. We were wildly um, underdressed too. Yeah. But I think it worked around. out. <laughs> Hopefully we didn't rain out anyone's parade, but we did get to yeah, meet some been, people that have been on the podcast. That was fun. Yeah, it was great. I don't, know, Ian, I don't know any other thoughts for the weekend. Yeah, I think um, it's probably not something I'm going to go do every single year, but it was cool to meet meet other investors and just be able to talk stocks and and get to know them a little bit too, because there's just, I don't know, sometimes you talk stocks with all these people, but getting to just see their personalities a little bit and um over dinner and over a couple of drinks is kind of a, a cool experience. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And just, I don't know, the atmosphere was just pretty cool. It was, I've never been around that many investors before. So <laughs> getting, getting yeah, that experience was really cool. So just be able to, sorry. I'm, I'm checking the question doc. Sorry. I, I uh, kind of went loud there. No questions. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Make sure to put that on mute, Ryan. We got, yeah, someone saying, what are our top three high conviction names? Um, well, I don't think Ryan and I can really do that. If you want to look, we we run our small fund that you can look at the disclosures on there. We do update our holdings there every month. So I would look at the some of the weightings there, but we don't really want to talk um, anything just because, uh, you know, keep it private for the fund. But Ian, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or that mm-hmm. comment there from... Uh, Sorry, I can't pronounce your name. I uh, I have zero conviction in anything anymore. So that's <laughs> my comment. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Conviction's tough. Conviction's tough. Conviction went out the window down 50%. <laughs> no, yeah. it's... Uh, no, my, my conviction, my conviction, I will say, my, my uh, what I have conviction in is that over, over long periods of time, the U.S. economy is still going to thrive. Uh, the U.S. Boring. markets are gonna. The U.S. markets are gonna be uh, uh, reflect that over long periods of time, and I want to be invested in the companies that are gonna be part of that uh, U.S. secular growth for long periods of time. So, well, I, you really listened to Buffett's answers this weekend. Huh? <laughs> that sounds that sounds like a ninety year old Buffett answer right there. No, I mean it's, it's hard, right? Like, I don't know. I think that question's a tough one. It's like the wrong framing. Nothing against whoever asked it, but. You, I just think the asking like, what are your highest conviction ideas, irrespective of valuation? That's kind of not. I don't know. That's not really how I like to think about it. I like sometimes it's nice to think about what are the best businesses. Businesses. I mean, we did that as a show. Um, one of our quarterly roundtables, ranking the top five businesses, or at least personal opinion, top five businesses, irrespective of valuation. But I think I don't know. I just don't think that's the, the right way to go about it because it can get you locked into um, a company emotionally. And if the business is, say, not performing how you thought and you have ingrained in your head, okay, this is my highest conviction idea. I love this company, or blah, 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 blah. It can be tougher for you to let go. Yeah, you know what? I might... I might have a new mantra. Conviction doesn't exist. I think conviction is like 
investors convincing themselves they understand something or like like trying to build yourself up confidence like your confidence in a business doesn't matter doesn't really matter that doesn't have any bearings on what the business's results are going to be so it's kind of like yeah like as as you said you feel like you've built up conviction so now you like have to own it like i i can say personally that oh the the business i know best has been one of my worst performing stocks of all time so it's like it doesn't necessarily it like it doesn't translate it, it might not it might not be indicative of, of what the best potential return is all right uh, hey, to, to answer the question sorry uh, that was a bad I'm gonna, tap joke <laughs> i'm gonna post my holdings or sorry i'm gonna post the funds holdings for uh achilles i think his name is who put put the question in the chat so i'll post that and then if you guys want to check them out you can um but yeah we don't really want to talk about that on a live stream that's more of a we do it every month so things can but, change but yeah but let me flip the question instead to something kind of tangential. If you had to own, assume all valuation parity across all businesses, like they're all trading, whatever, 10 times, let's say uh, 20 times earnings or 20 times cash flow, let's say. And, you and excluding, own, excluding unprofitable businesses. Yeah. And you could only own one business for the next decade. And it has to be one business and you can't sell it is there a business that you know would still be there and be more valuable oh gosh that's a hard question ian did anything come to mind with you i think the first couple things that come to mind and i'm just trying to pull up their numbers right now because i know it doesn't matter what their valuation is but for this question but i think i would probably say uh, home depot or costco would be high on that list just because I think they've, they've proven they can grow cash flow year over year. They're very important parts of the um, of the world economy. And you know, today, let's see. Just for reference, today, which one was this? This is Home Depot's trading at about thirty times free cash flow. And um, uh, what was the other one? I said Costco. Costco's trading at. Let's see. Costco's trading at 43 times free cash flow. And so the idea of being able to get a 33 or a 50% discount on one of those businesses, you know, if I'm just getting the market multiple on a great business that's growing cash flow and, and is well managed and is, is a major part of the, the world economy, I think I'd be uh, I'd be all over that. Yeah, those are good choices. It's hard to see how they get disrupted. Uh, I would I, I think three that come to mind for me. These are very boring. Are Google, well, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Amazon? I guess Amazon is getting a lot of hate right now, but at and I guess well, they're unprofitable. They're out of the uh, they're out of this uh, category, but maybe Microsoft and Google then. You uh, you've officially climbed the traditional investor evolution, where you you go ah. No, 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 a lot of large numbers. I can't own Fang. To just being worn down enough that you're like, Fang's the only thing I can own. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, that might be a little, only thing I can own is a little far, but yeah, I'm not anti-law of large numbers anymore. Although I am kind of anti-buying stuff 
a mature business at 40 times earnings like Microsoft. But if it was cut in half, I mean, man, that's pretty bold proof. What do you guys what about think? You? Have or you guys ever ahead, looked Ryan. at, uh, well, I don't know. I'd probably agree with everything you guys said. Um, I might risk it for the biscuit and go with like something a little more, uh, less, less on the side of preservation of capital and more like could, could be huge returns in 10 years, even though it's only one company. hundred percent app harvest. That's it, right? App harvest might not be the, uh, the company of choice, but just something where I think like the, the growth rate could potentially be higher than some of the more mature businesses that are like solidified. And I think, I don't know. Match groups are one that comes to mind where something with just like a huge tailwind that hasn't yet been, that it's still like early on in that tailwind versus I think Google, Google search is pretty dominant. I think it's a pretty mature business at this point, even though it continues to grow and defy gravity and pretty much all the ones we've named are mature businesses. But uh, another question that kind of, when we were thinking about high quality businesses, have you guys studied the credit ratings agencies at all? I have not. Not much. I've taken I've taken a cursory glance at them before, but but I have not looked into them very much. I was tasked with uh, looking at S and P Global this week, and I've got to say that is one hell of a business. Yeah, you like have to go through them. I mean they. They were like a main driver of the great financial crisis. And everyone's like, well, whatever. We just got to like, that would kill any other business. <laughs> but they're yeah, like, it's, a, it's a good toll road, yeah. essentially. And with ESG stuff coming in, that could be another tailwind. I don't know it too well, but yeah, they're very bulletproof, similar to a stock exchange where yeah. it's going to be there as long as the stock market's open. I don't know. They're, the ratings agency, agencies seem a bit, and maybe this is more like, I don't know, The maybe it's not necessarily the rating agencies or maybe it's companies associated with taking people public like Goldman Sachs or something or Morgan Stanley, but it feels a bit tied to the business cycle. So, well, I don't know. There's a little bit of risk there, but I mean, obviously, as long as public markets are growing and the number of stocks out there or the size of, you know, the, the public markets are growing. It seems like they'll have a durable tailwind indefinitely. And they have an incredible moat with their brand um, that there's really only what two or three players out there. But I don't know the industry that well. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust and move forward in a digital era? KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. Interesting stat. This quarter, high yield debt issuance. So bonds issued that were, I guess, lower rated, declined 68% year over year. And Wow. S&P Global's revenue in total across everything was still up 2% year over year because they have some, they have the subscription business in their like research services and cap IQ and all that stuff. 
And then they have like commodity research that like big funds subscribe to. There's another element to the, that the indexes, they take AUM, like a percentage fee from all their ETFs and indexes. I don't know. It like, it's like they just, it's guaranteed growth. It feels like as long as like the world doesn't turn into like a multi-decade recession. Yeah. I don't know why it feels like when I'm looking at, I always say, I mean, I said, I put the New York stock exchange on my top five businesses of all time. Um, It seems almost cheating to me. I just have this block in my head where I can't invest in the stock exchange. I can't invest in these rating agencies, anything associated with like the actual market, like kind of the double, the weird, thing where it's like you're investing in a stock that's a part of the stock market in my head it's i put like a blocker up but they've all been great businesses and they seem like over a long enough time period unless we go into a giant great depression a really hard place to lose money as long as you have good managers at the helm so it it seems like they're all great businesses and i know um uh, obviously not spoiling any wrecks or anything but I know Matt Cochran over at Seven Investing has done some great research on these type of businesses. They seem pretty rock solid, and I don't know why I don't care about them, but I, I just haven't researched them at all. What one business from last year did you think? All right, this is the this is a business I absolutely want to own, but the price precludes me. Because I, throughout all our not so deep dives last year, it felt like a lot of the time we we're like, "All right, this is a wonderful business," but the valuation makes no sense. And now I'll that pull, they've come, now that they've come full course. circle, I'm like, "Eh," like shrugging my shoulders <laughs> at it. Price drives narrative. Ian, anything come up with you? Yeah, I have to. I'm pulling up the list to think about it real quick. Um, let's see. Well, I'd say Roblox is actually Roblox is in that boat for me like i bought just like a couple of shares as kind of a start you know it's a tracking position basically at the ipo but it was kind of one of those things that i was like oh you know once this gets once if this gets beaten down then i'll really load up and it's gotten beaten down quite a bit but i was looking at the valuation again you know a couple weeks ago and uh, it still just wasn't the problem is like the deals and a lot of other things still seem better than the deal than the valuation of Roblox. It feels like you still have to price in a lot of growth um, or expect a lot of growth given the current price. But um, like, I think that's the thing for me that's been weird is there was a lot of stuff we were looking at last year that we said, oh, if the price came down on this, I'd really be interested in it. But the problem is the price has come down in everything. And so everything that you're interested in in 2021 at, at, at price, price levels has become even more interesting this year, except for oil and gas, maybe. Yeah, I'm pretty picky. So usually I'm like, well, eh, I'll just buy more from the existing 10 or 12 companies uh, we like the best. And you know they have not, almost all of them haven't held up. So their valuations have come down as well, uh, along with everything else. I mean, I was looking at Wise. They're a bit early to the public market, so I kind of want to see, but I mean, it's a great product. Uh, I've used them and the stocks don't down, come down a ton. Shopify has come down a ton. Yeah. And that one was very interesting when we covered it. Twilio, uh, Dutch Bros, eh, I don't like their, I don't like their executive or uh, their capital structure. It makes me nervous because it feels like they're trying to pull our leg. Uh, SoFi, 
uh, Airbnb, but I guess Airbnb has been up. So I don't know. There's a lot on that list. Go back and listen to the old not so deep dives and I'll see us joke that it's at 50 times sales. Uh, maybe today, you know, the price might be a little bit more attractive. I'm, I'm doing the math right now. And Shopify is down more than 75% from its highs. And you know what? Not fun. Right. Not to take a victory lap, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyways. We said maybe, but we, we said this needs at least a 50% haircut. And everyone's like, it's never going to get that. And now that it's happening, I hear all, everyone's pessimistic about the business. It's They're strange. Like, oh, yeah, no, it's terrible results. Like, this isn't going to, like, it's the same business, really. Growth, growth was slow this quarter, but it's like they're lapping the greatest pull forward of all time. Yeah, I didn't check out their quarter. What would you did you guys look at it? I I saw a little bit of stuff. Just expenses were really up and growth was like top line was like teens. I think yeah. it was 17%, maybe. They're also buying that uh the liver er yeah. two R's. For like 2.1 billion, I think. Did they give an earnings multiple or well, probably not profitable revenue multiple on that? Uh, 22% year over year growth. That's not bad. Two year compound of 60%. I don't know. People just don't want to own that right now. It's strange, but it, well, I, that's the thing is even you know, good for those types of, for those types of numbers. Um, I think they, they also said, you know, they don't provide guidance anymore and some stuff like that, but it's trading at, let's see, we're at, uh, Still at ten times revenue, basically eleven times revenue, twelve times revenue, somewhere in that neighborhood. Um, so it's a lot better than forty times revenue, but still, still pretty steep. If if you're not able to project out, you know, twenty to twenty five percent growth for the next five years. Yeah, especially given their margins are what gross margins fifty percent. So they probably, I think they've guided to twenty percent long term earnings or cash flow margins. It's different than someone like Adobe or Facebook or Autodesk at 40 times who seem a bit more reasonable at 10 times sales. I feel like maturity, what Shopify would probably be like five times sales-ish. What do you guys think? Something around there gets you to, if they're at 20% margins, uh, five times, they're at 25 times free cash flow. So. Okay. Um, I, feel, uh, gonna, I feel like every digital business just like, I just assume like terminal 20 times cash flow roughly. Yeah, that's, I mean, well, it sounds like you sound like a compounder guys, uh, which I think, I think you are. So yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense to me too, as a good, it's kind of impossible to tell whether something will be at 15 or whether the market will value it at 25 or whether it's at 10. I mean, that's kind of a bad downside if you're guessing at 20, but it's just a guess. So something just middle of the pack always seems nice to me, but we got a question here from Bill. Uh, what are some clues you would use to know when stocks are down far enough to start buying or do you start dollar cast cost averaging starting today? Great question. Um, I would, I would handle this by saying we are not financial advisors. We say that on every show, but boring, I think we have a boring <laughs> cliche answer and we do not have years and years of experience. Um, but basically what we're going to say is based off other people we've read that have years and years of experience. It doesn't matter. A stock doesn't care where it's been, first of all. So, and I, 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 
I do it too. So I'm kind of hypocritical on this, but it's so, and I just did it. Quoting how far down it is from its highs has is completely irrelevant to its future returns. So it's fun though. <laughs> it is fun just to think like how much uh, wealth has been lost, I guess. But the, even though most often it's, it's my own stocks that I'm quoting. Um, no, the thing I, the thing I, we kind of look for is we just, um, to the best of our abilities, I think, try to take a stab at where, how much cash a company will generate in the, the succeeding years. Um, and where, what we think a fair multiple would be at that point, And then, retrace to the current price and and see what our return would be. That's, yeah, kind of uh, evaluating what I like to do multiple different uh, time periods. So like how much do you think they'll generate three years from now? Okay, if it's not very much, I need to be very confident in their growth rate. How much are they going to generate five years from now, seven years from now? And the farther you go out, the the harder it's it's impossible to predict. So like the more uncertainty there is. So there's just so many factors that go into it, but I'll say that the question I think that Bill framed it was the wrong way to do it because you don't know how far stocks are going to... You don't know whether a stock is far enough down or sorry, the chart doesn't mean anything if you're a fundamental investor. Now, some people use technicals, that's fine with them. But say if you're not someone that's a professional or anything like that, what the stock chart looks like in the past is kind of meaningless. Do you think it versus its current market cap or enterprise value today do you think the stock is undervalued or do you think it's going to be worth much more in the future? Um, that's what you should try to be doing. And if there is a bit of uncertainty or if you're worried about, say, I don't know, if you're very, very nervous about where stocks are headed, which is not something that that's not a rational thought right now, dollar cost averaging isn't a bad way to go. If that's something you're worried about um, because if you buy something over once a month for the next year, it's over the really long term, it's not a big difference between doing that compared to just buying it all today. Does that make sense, you guys? Or am I, or am I off base there? I'm really bad at giving any sort of advice to people or teaching stuff, um, not my expertise. So no, I think that makes sense. I would just I would add for me the drawdowns when you see oh the stock is fifty percent off its highs or seventy percent off its highs that serves as a good. Um, little indication to me that maybe I should take a look at it. And so I'll use that sometimes as idea generation. Like why did something fall 50% or 70% and I'll go kind of explore it. And then I think the next step is, are you just like you would with um, any other asset in your life, whether it was a house or a car or um, you know, whatever else you were buying, is this going to, is the price I'm buying this at today going to provide enough value for me in the future that I'm willing to buy it? When you buy a house, you don't really care if you know two months from then, two months from now, the house drops by another ten percent because you were happy buying that house, making the payment on it, and owning it for you know presumably for years to come. If you're, I'm assuming you're living in it, um, and I think the same thing is true with stocks, right? I don't know, like when I buy a stock, I always kind of set a rule for myself that I expect the stock to drop another ten percent, like in the next week. Um, just because that always seems to happen to me whenever I buy something, it drops 10% the next week. And so that doesn't matter to me though, just like the house price dropping 10% a week later 
doesn't really matter. Like it's annoying because you're like, oh, I could have got it for a little bit cheaper, but it doesn't matter if my ultimate expectations play out the way that I expect it to. And so if that you know house or that stock rises in value by 5% a year, and that's what I was looking for, then when I sell it you know, 10 years from now, it's all great. And it doesn't matter what it's done in the interim. And so I think the important thing is, like Brett was saying, is it's focusing on what kind of free cash flow, what kind of you know, basically what kind of profits can this business generate for, for you? And are you happy with that and happy with its growth, growth prospects going forward? And if you are, then, you know, getting into the stock is, is kind of up to you. Sometimes when I'm have, when the the stock is bouncing around a lot, it's easier for me to buy in chunks. And so I'll buy in thirds and say, okay, I'm going to put a third of my money in, um, a third of the money that I'm planning to invest in this stock in this week. Um, a third in the first week of next month and a third in the first week of the month after that. Um, if I'm having trouble just kind of pulling the trigger because I'm, I'm worried about the volatility. And so I think there's some strategies like that to kind of figure out how to enter a stock once you've decided to. Um, but it's, that's all, you know, that's all based on your kind of risk profile and what you, what you feel comfortable doing and all that, those sorts of things. So, um, it's a highly, I'd say that piece of it, probably even more so than just about any other piece of investing is highly, um, personality. Personal? Yeah. 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 Kind of personality based. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. Yeah, and it's, it's so situational because if like, if you have a fixed amount of money, I guess let's, let's use our fund, for example, like there isn't a, unless we're constantly raising money, there isn't a steady stream of income like a individual would have. And so managing the money should be different. You should use a different approach to portfolio construction. If you know that you're going to have cash coming in every month, then you're then using a cash buffer might not be that uh, it might not be that essential because you can dollar cost average as that cash comes in, as opposed to having a fixed amount of money. I don't know. It. I always I always struggle giving like anything, any sort of broad rules around portfolio construction, because everything's so, so each situation is so unique. Yeah, it's tough. It's all about what makes you comfortable psychologically. That's the most important thing because you don't want to make irrational mistakes when the market's down, like, you know, like today, 5% NASDAQ. That's, uh, I guess, bringing it back to that. I mean, did you guys see anything that would cause this to happen? Or do you think margin calls from people, people the f- getting speculative about future Fed hikes because did anything change from last yesterday? The market was up three percent. I don't know. It just seems wild that today of all days, everyone decided to sell randomly. Shopify reported the market mover. The, uh, I don't know. Actually, it's not. I don't know how that's a market mover. It's kind of weird to me. Like they're not. They're not the economy. I, I don't. I don't know. B uh, B Branda one says that Shopify's expenses were out of whack this quarter due to gap rules. Uh, associated with their investments in Global E and Affirm. Uh, I can say that I have not officially read the entire report, but we are kind of shooting at the hip. I would not be surprised 
if Shopify's expenses were generally higher, I, I would I would be. Well, they probably alarmed. had their high their hiring pace has probably been you know pretty rapid, and now that revenue's yeah. slowing, that's harder to stop that engine. Your revenue growth will slow because it slows, and your hiring growth, you probably it's I don't know. It, I think of that as more of a like a giant ship, a steam ship engine. Um, right. But without reading the report, I don't think we any of us own shop. You own Shopify. Yet? I own a little bit of Shopify, and I can okay. speak to that a little bit. So that those uh, those investments do hit earnings per share because it's you know you, you market to the market, and um, and so it hits earnings per share because those valuations of their investments have gone down what investors were more concerned with, and maybe the algos had something to do with earnings per share miss um, and driving the stock price down. But I think what investors were more concerned about was basically the pace of um, the pace of expenses stayed the same while the growth pace, the growth rate slowed. Um, and so the pay, and when I say the rate of expenses, I mean like operating expenses and not, so not that, not the global e investment or the, um, uh, a firm investment. And so, um, those things like don't have a cat, those, those pieces don't have a cash impact on the business because it's just a valuation change, but the, the operating expenses, things like sales and marketing, uh, headcount, all those types of things, um, maintained, uh, a fairly high level of spend. And so I think those were the expenses that, uh, fundamental investors were more concerned with. Yeah. I'm seeing here, they're spending almost half of gross profit on sales and marketing, uh, it's going to have to come down eventually. I don't know. I get concerned. Like, what are you guys' thoughts on a fast-growing business? I don't know. I feel like sales and marketing is just such a hard thing to judge when you're trying to value a fast-growing business because you have. I don't. I, I don't know if you have no idea. But it's very hard to judge whether it is steady state marketing that needs to be around, say for like a Coca-Cola or something like that, that's always going to be marketing. Or if you're in some one shoes like Shopify, where you're spending half of sales and marketing on, or sorry, half of gross profit on sales and marketing. And a lot of software companies are much worse than Shopify, spending all of their gross profit on sales and marketing. Is that just a house of cards keeping revenue growth up? Or is it actually leading to good ROIs? No, well, I don't know. It's so hard to judge. It's really That's hard why to I get judge uncomfortable because, with these stocks. I mean, there's kind of two things that go on in my mind, which is like, how? What's the payback? I guess so. Like, how long are those customers sticking around? Right. If if your expenses are going up, or if your marketing spend is going up. But you're attracting customers that are going to be around for 10 years. The payback's probably there, but it's really hard to judge whether or not, especially if they don't give out like a churn figure. Like if you don't give a churn figure associated with it, it's hard for us to judge what the payback's going to be, even even though some of the companies give out a number on that. And then the other one is Churn's, like- hey, One thing on churn, churn is static. It's not, or sorry, churn is not static. It's dynamic. You can change every quarter. Yeah, but it's. I feel like it's it, it's helpful to know, even, yeah. even if it's trailing. No, it is. It is. It is. The, but I, uh, I don't know. Just basing off of like an extrapolation off of what would happen if you stop spending sales and marketing on, I don't know, 
I just think it's there's so many variables with churn is one of them. But sorry, go ahead, Ryan. I don't know. It seems like the ROI has gotten worse over the last few years on like, or sorry, over the last year on traditional marketing spend. Like I, I feel like a lot of companies are spending more to get are having to spend more to get the same result they got last year because there was like sort of this organic pull forward of users. I'm, I'm thinking of like the content management systems companies. So like big commerce, Shopify, uh, Wix, the, there was sort of that natural adoption as nat, but now in order to get those same users, they have to pay up substantially more just so they can show that growth. I would rather have something where the cost to acquire a customer diminishes over time, which is typically more of a network effect business, which is more, I don't know, if you're a, if you're a B2B, it's hard to, you're not going to find a big network effect business. I feel like. Yeah. It's more consumer internet. Ian, any thoughts on that? Or should we move on to another topic? What's a fun topic this week? Earning stocks that are not down 20%. (laughs) We have nothing to talk about. We've had we've have uh, a guy named Favre um, in the chat m- making a couple of comments about some macro um, kind of pieces of the market right now, and I think he's right that there's a lot um, of macroeconomics at play in the you know the quote unquote kind of sector rotation or the movement to you know oil and gas stocks have gotten really popular recently, and a lot of this tech stuff has become less popular, and I think for for someone like me and I you know I flip this over to you guys too, to get your co- Tom, uh, comments on it. But I think for someone like me, the macro stuff is always interesting and I kind of, I'll follow it. I'm never, or I won't say never, but almost never trying to like play the macro environment, but um, I'm trying to understand how the macro environment affects my companies. And then also trying to take advantage when there's things that are um, short-term macro events, right? So something like COVID, um, when it was first announced and causing the market to tank and all of a sudden you look around and you go, man, there's some great deals on some businesses here that I think are still in great shape for the long term." Or when the, the market gets spooked about uh, interest rates or things of that nature, those can have effects and those can have years long effects. Um, but it can also create really cool buying opportunities for, for certain companies. And so I think a lot of times for long-term investors and particularly individual investors, the macro environment creates a lot of opportunities for, um, for you to kind of, take advantage of it because you're not playing the game that the majority of the money is playing in those situations, right? When there's all this money that's, that's getting focused on, you know, quarterly or one to two year timeframes. Um, if you're able to take a, a longer term approach, um, you just get some, there's some inefficiencies that work in your, that can work in your favor because a lot of the market gets fo- focused on the shorter terms when there's macro uncertainty and there's a lot of volatility. And so it can create these, like I said, these inefficiencies in the market, at least this is my opinion, it creates inefficiencies in the market that really benefit uh, long-term investors. But the market's perfectly <laughs> efficient. Yeah. Have you seen okay. it? Uh, well, I will it. say it's an, it's an interesting comment because I think the, um, the market is efficient in a lot of ways, but market can only be like, the market is efficient. It has to be efficient, like for something, and so for some time frame or for some type of outcome that people are looking for, and or so for what people playing, believe, or what people or what believe, people believe and right? And what so they believe could be wrong, right? For what they believe, and if you're playing by a different, like if you're playing a, a different game than most of the market is playing, um, there's going to be some 
opportunities there because you're valuing something that the market's not optimizing for, right? The, the market's efficient for what it's optimizing for and what, what people believe. But if you're actually playing a different game, um, then sometimes then the market's going to be um, inefficient for you, right? And that may work in your benefit in some cases and work not in your benefit in some cases. And so there'll be some companies that look to you like, oh man, this is a screaming deal. And there's going to be other companies that look to you like, wow, this is really a, uh, like, I, I don't know why anybody would buy this, but I think, I think there is, the market is efficient in a lot of ways, but there's, um, but like holistically, right. And so you can still, I think, find opportunities as investors, yeah. obviously in the market. And it's, I know it's like a cliche to say that having a long time horizon is a competitive, is like an advantage over other investors, but it, like, I think we're seeing it now with all the companies that are having like supply chain issues that are like pretty, you could almost say like, even if it went out two years, even if the supply chain problems went out two years, it's still going to be a fine business, but people can't weather that. Like, and a lot of the institutions are like their investors are not going to sign on for, if they say this, we're going to have two years of bad returns they have to give them something they have to give them something to like chase soon so it makes it hard to be in there so if you actually have no one that you have to explain or rationalize your investments to and you can genuinely see like all right i'm owning this company for 5 years because i think it's going to be a bigger business in whatever 5 10 years like that is a game other people structurally can't play yeah i agree I think an example on this, there's an industry and an industry that I'm trying to learn about is semiconductors, which it'll take a few years for me to do that. But it seems like one of the key, and this might be simplifying it too much, but sometimes the industry is cyclical or it is cyclical and there are down cycles when people overbuild and those fears can drive stocks wildly lower in the short run because people are worried about next year's earnings, next quarter's earnings, blah, 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 blah. Um, they don't want to be in the stocks, you know, because it's going to look bad for a few quarters. But to me, and th- there's examples of this across all sorts of industries. If there is a long-term tailwind, or if you believe in the long-term thesis of the business and you believe in the management, blah blah blah, all those fundamental things, those can prevent present buying opportunities for you when they occur if your time horizon is longer than a year. And it's weird to think. Like you get caught up in maybe the FinTwit bubble or just your friends in investing who are all fundamental investors or the people you follow that are the same type of investors, say like we are long-term, five to 10-year time horizon. You think everyone is like that, but it's actually the opposite. Most people aren't when it comes down to it. And it's it seems crazy to me, uh, but I guess that's just the way it is. And you can sometimes take advantage of it if you're looking to buy individual stocks. Yeah. All right. I want to share your topic. What else do we have? Someone said DocuSign's another good example of that. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Example of what? What was he referencing? The uh, like increased marketing spend to achieve the same like customer oh. account. Yeah. Not like a Gosh. network effect business. I know. The marketing spend is tough. Some I think I heard someone this I forget who it was who we were talking to one time that said there's a chance that all of digital marketing is just a Ponzi scheme layered on VCs putting money into startups. 
And I think there's a chance that's correct. Not literally a Ponzi scheme, but like, you know, Google and Facebook's profits are based off of these unprofitable startups and software companies that are getting a ton of VC money. And I, I, it'll be interesting to see what happens if, I don't know, sales and marketing, you know, say there's a ton of down rounds over the next three years, not as many startups coming into play. I mean, could that have a negative impact it, it on is funny. digital marketing in general? But on the flip side for the existing companies, sorry, I'll let you go, Ryan. On the flip side, on the existing companies, the marketing spend, there might be less dollars going after the same you know, audiences, saying YouTube or whatever, or Facebook or Google. That could actually, like the cycle could come through and increase ROIs for the, the companies that stick around. The Yeah, that's kind of a good point too. The the Airbnb example is really fascinating. They cut marketing spend to the bone and didn't see an impact on growth. So just put, I wonder how many companies just say, all right, 50 million a month to Google AdSense, whatever. Like, we're just going to keep it there. Just put it on the back burner. Like what happens when you cut that? Are you going to see the customer count drop off a cliff? I, I doubt it. Yeah, the problem is I think there's, a, I don't know, I'd have to really do some research on this, but I think a lot of this sales and marketing spend that we see in um, in the 10Ks is th- there's large chunks of that that are headcount. And I think that companies are very reticent to to cut jobs. It just doesn't look good. No one likes to yeah. do it. Um, and so I think a lot of the companies that have bloat on them um, are potentially like a lot of them that we would say, Oh, they really need to improve margins. The problem is they probably have hired too many people because they've been VC funded. We've been in a raging bull market, all those types of things. And so it's just, things are going up. They're offering stock options and they're expanding, expanding headcount. And um, when a lot of these companies could probably be um, run more efficiently, I do want to give a shout out to just to everyone, all the viewers in the chat today. It's been, it's been great getting all these, these comments and questions, yeah. keep them coming. Um, well, hopefully this isn't a, we only got uh, eight, eight double, watchers right now. So we're double listeners, right? Oh, double our, watchers. Our week over week listener growth is a hundred percent. So if that, that yeah. continues, watch but out. It'll, it'll always be on the podcast, probably on Saturday or something. Whenever we yeah, we know, up, so. we know a lot of you are listening on the podcast too. So thank you for that. And if you want to jump in and watch live, we always love to have new viewers. Um, yeah, we got this a question isn't a, here. Uh, oh, go ahead, Ian. Yeah, I was going to say this isn't really a cheerier topic, but Nick asked, "What do we think about the uh, SM, SFM drop?" The uh, Safe Moon Sprouts Farmers Market. No, uh, not, uh, not Safe Moon. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I read the quarter. I read the quarter this morning. Um, I guess okay. I, I think we're allowed to say this, but I I put the holdings. Uh, I linked the holdings in the chat. We we don't own it anymore. So I'll say that, um, but I read the quarter. And I thought the quarter was fine. Uh, obviously, the market didn't. The the uh, it's kind of misleading though when you look at same store sales because inflation should help same store sales. Yeah. And so if you've got positive one percent same store sales and inflation's fifteen percent, these are just examples. It's not that's not what's happening. Your your same store sales are not, that is not good, even though you are growing technically because your costs associated with them are outpacing your sales growth. Yeah. I didn't look at the details of the report, but yeah, I mean, luckily we don't own it anymore, but um, yeah, I don't know. 
it's 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 a hairy situation. So it's this isn't this isn't Google, this isn't Costco, this isn't Home Depot. You just got to be okay with that and evaluate. Uh, I don't know, <laughs> evaluate accordingly. Um, I don't think I really have anything super intelligent to say about it, except that if they'll benefit their existing store base, given that pretty grocery stores aren't going to depreciate super fast. Um, and they might even overstate their depreciation. It'll benefit from inflation existing stores. But if they start accelerating store growth and materials costs are coming in higher, that's going to lower their returns on invested capital because they have to invest more after inflation. And that's kind of the classic one that, you know, I don't know, Buffett talks about that one constantly where their future returns from the new stores might be a lot lower. But I mean, look, the company continues to generate cash. It seems like it's pretty hard to lose money. Um, I don't know, Ian, you possibly still own it. Yep, I um, still own it. So I don't know. Did you read any the details of the report? I need to dig in more. I did read, I kind of read the top line numbers um, or the top, the high level numbers. Um, I think generally it's, I, I agree with what Ryan was saying, that given inflation, the, the growth is somewhat disappointing. It's good that they still grew um, uh, same store sales. I think from what I was reading, people were more concerned about the guide that they were coming in at the low end of their original revenue guidance um, for the rest of the year. They're, that's what they're expecting. And so, uh, you know, I think that's not great. They're still planning to open new stores. Um, I don't know. It's kind of one that, like you said, they're still generating cash. I think it's hard to lose lose much on this i would have to look take a look and see what the multiples back down to now but famous last words though (laughs) yeah it is it is famous last words for sure yeah don't Um, like we'll say this though it's it's don't listen to what we're saying like (laughs) like you have to do your own stuff like i'm very uncomfortable i don't want to talk about stuff that we own you know since you're just you know on, on your own talking about stuff um you own, I guess you're more comfortable, but I don't want to talk about stuff we actually own, but even something that we own, say a few months ago, it still makes me very uncomfortable because um, I don't think you should be listening to us. I love to talk about the no, business. 100% though, but, agree. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's, it seems super cheap though. Like Dunking on if anything, there. if anything, it seems super cheap. Their market cap's actually lower, even though the stock's a little higher than it was a year ago or uh, a year and a half ago. And look, it seems simple. Even if their ROICs are going to be coming lower because of inflation, they're going to grow store count. Same store sales, okay, might be flat or inflation adjusted, might not be that great, but they're going to generate cash and buy back stock. Um, Hold then, on. Go ahead, Ryan. All right. So, first of all, $153 million in operating cash flow for the quarter, $22 million in capex. So, we're looking at $132 or 31 uh, million in free cash flow in a quarter. They announced a new $600 million share repurchase program, which is equivalent to 23% of the market cap, I believe, and entered into a new $700 million credit facility with ESG linked uh, pricing. Oh, boom. That's our automatic buy now. I can't believe this is down 22% today. Yeah, it seems weird because the the stock I don't think was pricing in much, but you never know what's going to happen. Um, if you own Sprouts Farms Market, it's this isn't a durable compounder, so you kind of have to be up with, uh, or not up with, uh, 
is be comfortable with big price points. So that's just kind of how it is with these small caps turnaround stories. Although it's not even a turnaround story because it's been yeah, profitable it every year the last five years. I mean, kind of, kind of is a turnaround story. It's a new management, but they've been they've generated cash every year. So yeah. Right. It's kind of a, I think it's more of a story of if this has been a fine business, can we turn this into a great business? Yeah. Right, is kind of the question. Um, I've got a question for you guys, and, and this is kind of related to Sprouts Farmers Market, but you can take it more generally. When you've owned a company previously, um, do you ever consider, and then you've sold it subsequently, like you've done with Sprouts, and you don't have to comment on this particular situation, but when you see a, when you see a drop like this, does that make you think, hmm, are you willing to bring it back into the portfolio? I don't yes. think I've ever, I don't think I've ever sold anything that I've then rebought. And part of that's because I tend not to sell things. I just <laughs> hold on to yeah. them and let them, let them run to zero in my portfolio rather than sell them for a 90% loss. But, um, but yeah, what do you, what do you guys think about, about that? Yes, we, we, we have, and we will. Uh, I say we, but like, I'm very, com- I've grown more comfortable with that because, and it kind of helped in this situation that the decline happened really quickly. So we had still kind of kept up with the business. So we knew there wasn't some big material change. We didn't have to like reassociate ourselves with the situation. And Ryan, uh, you're referencing a d- different not sprouts, right? You're referencing yeah, a, a random stuff. company. <laughs> yeah. We both know who it is, but we're, we're not going to say the name. The, uh, it, we've done the work. The situation has not changed and we, we ended up making money and now it's back to where it was. And it's even cheaper on a valuation basis. Like it's, I, it, there's always that mental hurdle of like, well, I already sold it. Like, do I really want to own this again? And it's like, you should, if, if, if you think the value is still there, it's kind of just, but now that I've gotten over the mental block, I'm, I'm happy I did. Yeah, I don't know. I've never been uncomfortable with that. Uh, if you sell on valuation, I think it should still be on your watch list because if you sold on valuation, that means you don't think the business has deteriorated or anything like that. So if it gets a 50% haircut, or not 50% is pretty harsh. If it gets a 20% haircut for no reason because the market's tanking and it comes back into your price range where you think forward returns are going to be adequate for what you're looking for, you already know it well. Uh, it's so much, and you may be biased just because you already know it well, but it's so much easier to get up to speed. It might just take you, if it hasn't been that long, if it's been less than a year, it might just take you a few hours or a day to get back up to speed instead of a new idea where you got to learn the whole business, learn the industry, blah, blah, blah. Um, so yeah, I think it's a great, don't, (laughs) if you sell something on valuation, I mean, obviously if you sell because the business has not worked out like you think, say, I don't know, whatever. It just didn't, it wasn't a good business. We, you were wrong. You sold. It wasn't because of valuation. You throw it off the watch list. But if you sell something because of valuation, I think it's very, very important to keep it on the watch list because that can be an easy hunting ground um, when the market goes into a, a bear market like it is right now. All right. Got a little bit of time left. Yeah, what, five minutes? Uh, I don't know. There's so much chaos this week. It's kind of hard to... I don't... Uh, the the interest rate stuff just doesn't get me going. So I just... It's just not exciting. Like, oh, 50% or 0.5%, whatever it was. Um, I, know. I just... I don't know. Dinner tasted the same. 
<laughs> like they're I, like I no they'll thoughts. be like we're we're uh, we're gonna increase fifty basis points. Then they'll go, go to the next meeting. And it's like we're yeah, I look outside my basis. window like all right, they, the Earth's still the same. Nothing's nothing's different. <laughs> they price it. It's like we're at the next meeting. We're thinking about doing this. Gets priced in. They do it. Gets priced in again. <laughs> it was never priced in. I don't know. It's impossible. The, I, it's it's impossible to. I know. Like, who would have thought that? I don't know. Yesterday, people were relieved, and went up. The market went up three percent today. They're like, oh wait. I mean, if you bought and sold, if you bought yesterday and sold today, or whatever, or did two different actions today, like. You're not an investor, you're a trader. That's fine, but you just gotta know what you are. How cheap can stuff get? <laughs> as cheap as they can get as cheap as there's no level of cheapness. That's, I made it I had a good all right. Yes, there is, but, isn't there? Technically, if if nah, a company can buy back I, its own stock, yeah. isn't there a well, theoretical threshold? I I like uh, uh, Peter Lynch's as long as there's volume. As long as it's volume, I mean, if someone, if every other investor thinks a business is worth one cent and the stock will trade for that amount, because that's what the buyers and sellers think it's worth, it doesn't matter. I mean, the company could eventually buy back its entire float at that point and drive up the stock. But, and if you're the one remaining shareholder. Yeah. I mean, look at that's what happened to Dillard's um, recently. But theoretically, if there's no buyback, it can go as low. As possible because it's all just about what the marginal or what the I don't it's know just two third parties exchanging tickets exactly exactly virtual pieces of paper sorry Ian you had something there well I was just going to say I think Peter Lynch said that in this lecture that I've watched a few times that uh, people always ask about how far down can the stock go and he's like well or how much money can I lose in the stock and he said uh, well if you put in three dollars per share you can lose three dollars per share. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter. You can, you know, it doesn't matter if the stock was it used to be at ten dollars a share. If it, the stock goes to zero, um, both the guy who put in t- money for ten dollars a share and you who put in money for three dollars a share, both of you end up with zero at the end of the day. So, um, I think it is a yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons I like being diverse, fairly diversified. Is um, you know, just any any individual stock going to zero doesn't have a a crazy impact on my portfolio, but they can, right? I, I was just looking through my my uh, account today and looking at some stuff that was down to our point earlier about not listening to what we were saying. I was looking at some stuff down, you know, 80%, 90% and just being like, wow, that, you know, it, it, it seems, you know, when everything's going right, it seems like um, things can never really go down that much, but they do, right? There's, there's things that, you know, you get some overhyped emotion and, and, uh, some bad results. And that's what you end up with. So it's, yeah, a stock can't go below zero. Uh, good. That's great. But it can fall 50% forever. Your, your, your net worth in the stock can get cut in half every year indefinitely. Uh, I think someone like plug powers probably tried that very handily since the dot-com bubble, not to, you know, but there are stocks out there that do that. Um, and yeah, it's just part of the game. If you're concentrated, you have to realize that that could happen. You have to be comfortable with that sort of stuff happening. Um, but I don't know. That's a whole nother conversation. It's a, do you ever think about how absolutely insane the sentiment swings have been 
over the last two years. Yeah, we were just doing an interview with Brian Feroldi, and he said that even David Gardner, who has 30 years of experience running the Motley Fool, he said that this is the most chaotic two years that he's ever been a part of. And the sentiment, I, I think what's weird is that no one, there's no historical precedent, so no one knows what to think. So anyone that's trying to make a short-term prediction is has bad information. Does that make sense to you guys or, or am I? There was a point there during 2020 when valuations across the board were trading at insane, what I thought was insane premiums over and over. And I thought, well, how can any business ever go bankrupt? Because th- these guys can issue equity forever. I know when everyone's talking about issuing runway. equity. <laughs> yeah, and one year talking, later, yeah. one year later, I'm sitting here like, oh, all right, 15% interest on those bonds and you're burning cash, this might be your real bankrupt candidate. Yeah. I think the in, there was a nice little indicator there when everyone was like, well, the stock's overvalued, but they can use the stock as currency. When stock as currency was becoming in vogue again, that was kind of an <laughs> indicator maybe that you know people were like deluding themselves into thinking that the stock was fine. They're like, but they can just buy. They were deluding like, themselves that the deluding was fine. Oh, uh, that's what. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> they Ryan were D-E-L-U-D-I. That's a good. Uh, Ryan knows my joke. I call it. I don't call it shareholder delusion. I call it shareholder delusion. Um, but <laughs> the delusion uh, of delusion. Yes, exactly. Shareholder delusion. But no, I guess well, we got to wrap up. But the, the biggest example coming back to Shopify with their earnings today. Remember when everyone was like. Oh, they can just get about 30% dilution, just take out UPS. Like maybe that was an indicator that their stock was slightly overpriced, given that UPS is one of the giant delivery networks in, in North America and around the globe. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. But that I just thought I thinking back to that, that's what a lot of and that's rational, you know, they could have done that, from, maybe created some value, but now they're probably worth less than UPS. I haven't looked. It's got I would I wouldn't be surprised if it goes from, from 50 times sales to 50 times EBITDA in less than a year. <laughs> well, what about next 12 months long-term adjusted EBITDA? Yeah, I, uh, I don't want to hear about that metric. <laughs> that's all. That's what I, I mean. All right. That's what I, Ian, last so, comment. Last comment on. here. Yeah, last comment here to, to provide the numbers. Shopify is currently at a $52 billion market cap. UPS is at a... Hundred and fifty-seven billion dollar market cap. So oh UPS God. is over Oof. three times the size of Shopify. Oh, I don't think it was UPS then. I think it was FedEx. FedEx, FedEx. But same, same. You know. Yeah, I'll give you, I'll give you the number there real quick too, just to to check it out. Oh, FedEx is rate. at fifty-three billion dollar market cap. Yeah, it must be. Okay, I think it was FedEx. It was yeah, FedEx. versus Shops, uh, fifty-two billion. So FedEx is has surpassed Shopify. <laughs> Ooh, all right. I'm gonna. What a world. All right. Sorry. Last question. Then we'll sign off. What do you think? What performs better over the next 10 years? I don't know the companies very well at all. Either of them, but what performs better, FedEx or Shopify? I'll, I'll take Shopify. Yeah. I would probably have to take Shopify there. I agree. I'd take Shopify. But I think that buy with Prime could be a killer. But that's a, that's a discussion. For <laughs> so let's, uh... That's why the stock's down 30%. Everyone thinks buy with Prime is going to kill it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to sign off. Do we, do we do disclosures on this one? We should, you know, we what? should. Yeah. yeah. We talk, it. we talk a lot of individual stocks. So yeah.
Yeah. Uh, well, Brett and I are not financial advisors. Anything we say or discuss here on Chit Chat Money is not formal advice or recommendation. We are, however, general partners at Arch Capital, so clients may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time.